Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 1030 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. Okay, so we have, there's 19 values that um, we have identified as being a part of the underground movement and the syndicate. And there's a couple that are so obvious I don't want to spend a whole sermon on, okay? So we're going to hit these really fast, and then we're going to talk about one of them. So first is culture and ethnicity. This should not be controversial, but God doesn't care about your nationality. Your first and only sense of loyalty is to his kingdom, to his people. And so we want to be people that affirm every culture and ethnicity that, while imperfect, reflects a mosaic of God's own image. We believe that looking and being in a diverse culture and among diverse people is important, as you can see by our community. Um, We we live in a not very diverse place, but we value that God has brought to our valley a diversity. We believe that the Church of Jesus Christ was meant to demonstrate the power of the gospel to reconcile and unity through a beautiful multi-ethnic community. And for that reason, we do not just admire multi-ethnic communities, but purpose to become one. And so we do not believe in being colorblind, but rather we hope to accept and include the beauty and wisdom of every culture in our city and our communities. You cannot follow Jesus and hate people that look different than you. Full stop. You cannot follow Jesus and hate the foreigners living among us. Full stop. We are a people who are going to open up our arms to the people God brings to us. We're going to accept them as if they belong because that's what the Bible tells us to do. So I don't feel like I need to talk much more about that, but I want to make sure we hit that. The second is kingdom mission, and we talked so much about that this spring and even last spring, talking about what it means to live as sent, as missionaries, and as priests. Um, But we will live out Christ's mission because we are sent people just as he sent us. We believe that the church is not the church until it's fully engaged in mission for which God calls us. We are not a community of discipleship and worship. We are a community of worship, discipleship, and mission. And mission means God sends us out to be his ambassadors of justice, which is to set all things right by proclaiming the kingdom of God coming in his world. Okay? So everybody has a part in that. That's why we do everything we do. Since we believe that the life of Jesus in the early church demonstrated that God himself is with the lost and the poor of the earth, proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, We also believe that when we co-labor with him as workers in the harvest field, we'll not only bring peace, kingdom into that place, but we'll also experience the deepest and truest intimacy with God. Fundamentally, we believe that we actually can only experience God's true presence when we're partnering with him in his work. And so if you're missing out on something, and there is a part of you that's that's desiring deep intimacy with God, 
and you haven't yet stepped into that calling of co-laboring with Christ in this world, that's a good place to start because you won't actually see or experience God's presence until you're working with him. God's a busy guy. He's got a lot going on. And if you want to experience him, you've got to sidle up next to him and partner with him in the work he's called us to in this world. Okay, so now that we've kind of just touched lightly, those are two easy ones that we've talked about a lot. And I think this next value that we're going to talk about, simplicity, is one that's going to challenge all of us. Simplicity. We commit to live a life free from clutter and the allure of materialism. We affirm that every believer, and, and everybody feeling that? Whew. All right, let's just stop there. Everybody take a breath. Full stop. <laughs> We're going to have to put the brakes on one, one sentence at a time with this one. We affirm that every believer and every community of believers has a responsibility to renounce the sin of its own people. And the sin of our people is this. As North Americans, we renounce the slavery and idolatry of materialism by embracing a simple lifestyle. We do not believe that money or things are in themselves evil or to be avoided, but that the love of money and things is one of the greatest perils Western believers face in our time. We willingly use material things and wealth for the service of the kingdom, but not for personal fulfillment or inappropriate luxury. In doing so, we pursue wholeness and completeness socially while pursuing a single-minded devotion to God. Whew, let's unpack that. All right, let's start with material stuff. In itself, it's not sin. Like, let's, let's be clear. Stuff is not sin. And many people have made the mistake of calling the material world sin. Um, the Greeks started it, so we're just continuing on what the Greeks did. Um, but they created this bifurcated reality of material and spirit and didn't live connected. And we live in a connected reality where our bodies are the place where our spirits reside. And so we live in a physical universe that is material and we need stuff to survive, okay? You just have to be clear about that. This world and all the things that it provides is meant as provision for us. God filled up the earth with asteroids pummeling this rock to fill it with minerals for us to build with and nutrients for us to derive from it. God brings the sun, the rain, the dirt, the seasons, the genetic material of seeds for growing food and clothing. God has required and created this material existence for us. God has provided for us the animals that belong in this world for protein and for clothing. And it's all just sitting there for us to use. And so I, we don't want to reject the material reality of this world. It's a gift from God. When you look at the earth, you should see it as just this magnificent miracle among the planets and the stars. God has put us here in this place that works for us. And it's by our work that we're going to extract the value and create something from the raw material of this world that's going to bring human flourishing. What's the first job of humanity? It was to garden. It was to take the, the natural fruit of the earth and to tend it so that it brings fruit for flourishing for Adam and Eve and their family. It's not just here to admire. Now, some people reject humanity, not just reject materialism, but reject humanity's place in this earth. 
It's not just here for us to admire the beauty of it, but God put all these things in it for us, but to use. And no matter how we arrange the molecules on earth, none of them are lost, and none of them have diminished with value by our use. Have you ever thought about that? Every bit of energy and every molecule in existence has never ceased to exist. Everything is still here, and our use of it just rearranges it in ways that provide for the next use that will come along. So we love the earth, and we care for it because it's a gift from God, but of course, we're humans, and we take anything and turn it into an ultimate thing, or even a bad thing. We can take an excess of our appetite, our appetite for safety, our appetite for warmth, our appetite for cool air, our appetite for food, our appetite for power over earth. And we take these, these excesses of our appetite and we destroy the very gift that God has given us. We're, we're humans and God gave us dominion over earth and instead of stewarding the creation that God has entrusted to us, we have dominated it in a way that has turned it into something that's much less useful than what God meant it for. It's not just taking good or evil. All material things are the fabric of reality. We're not just spirit. We're spirit and flesh, and our body inhabits this material world. Our need, we have needs for food and shelter and relationship and safety, and just like a lot of things in our world, possessions are an appetite to manage rather than good or evil that must be embraced or eschewed in ascetic simplicity. What I mean by it is this. You need stuff. Your body's going to tell you to get more stuff than you need, and so you need to manage your appetite for stuff. You must find a way to stop yourself from demanding that you grab everything around you because it gives you safety. And so we must look at Jesus and his disciples to learn their relationship to the material world and how we should see and relate to it. I think that we can trust that Jesus' way is good, right? That's why we're here. We're looking at Jesus and seeing the way that he did things, and we're trying to follow him, even in his radical relationship to stuff. I think that's what he wants. So let's look at Jesus and his disciples. They left behind their vocations. They had jobs. All of them had some sort of work that they were doing to provide for themselves and or their families. They left aside their vocations and followed Jesus. Now, is that normative and demanded of all followers of Jesus to leave behind our vocations to follow Jesus? The answer is no. That is not normative. Now, for a season, many people will leave behind a path of vocation for a time of preparation. Maybe it's college, maybe it's high school, maybe it's a discipleship program. A lot of people work in churches in their 20s as a way to learn how to follow Jesus and how to gain vocational skills. So some of them followed their, left their vocations, but we see immediately after Jesus ascends to heaven that his disciples then take up some different kinds of work to provide for their families. They were at the mercy of hospitality to others. Jesus' followers spent time together, and there were 
various, mostly wealthy women, you'll find that wealthy women are the source of a lot of good in the world. Um, you look at the Bezoses, and Jeff Bezos has 100 and I think only 20 billion this week after the stock market. Um, but he is, he's given away almost none of it. And his ex-wife, Mackenzie Bezos, has taken and pledged 99% of her wealth to give away. It's mostly women who give away their wealth in the world. They were at the mercy and hospitality of others. They had to rely on others to provide for them. They had to trust God for provision. Every step along the way as disciples, they couldn't go, hey, Jesus, what's the revenue this month? Let's make sure that we make payroll so that we can do the ministry. Jesus wanted them to be deeply dependent on him, trusting him for every step of the way that God would provide. They did have a shared purse for expenses. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't some uh, communist dream that Jesus had these disciples that had no money, okay? Now, th there are some people who believe that Jesus was a socialist or a communist because he didn't work when he was doing his discipleship work, but that's not true. Jesus and his disciples were cared for by a shared purse that was run by Judas. That's why you always got to be wary of the treasurer. The treasurer... <laughs> Scheme. We don't even have one, really, so I guess that's, that's me and Jess. So watch out for me and Jess as we're, as we're watching the money. Um, but there's a shared purse that God gave them for expenses, presumably from donations. Um, when you look at Jesus, when, when the disciples are there with the 5,000, their first instinct was not to ask for donations for food to feed the masses. What was it? Their first instinct was to pay for it out of the shared purse because they lived in an economic reality that required them to have money and to spend it for things like food for themselves and for others. Now, some caveats. When Jesus and his disciples were in their season of preparation, they lived in a temperate climate. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, but you can live outdoors almost all year in Canaan, okay? So that's, that's a caveat. Can you do that here? Not really. Um, they lived in a culture that had an extreme value of hospitality, so that everywhere they went, everyone that they saw was obligated to invite them into their home and provide meals and shelter for them. Is that true of our world? No. They had a clear itinerant calling. Now, what's an itinerant calling? It means that they were sent out on the road. They weren't sent to a particular place. They had a particular calling for a particular season, so that Jesus and his disciples went about preaching the kingdom of God to the lost children of Israel. So they had an itinerant calling that was moving, and it was only for a season. Did Jesus' disciples continue that forever? No. Most of them ended up stabilizing and spending time and investing in a city, in a region, to preach the gospel from a place, okay? So there's different reasons and different seasons for different relationships with the material reality around us. Now, let's, let's dive into the hard stuff. Let's look at Jesus' teaching on material wealth. Everybody take a breath. This is going to suck. Here we go. <laughs> Luke 12, verse 33. If you've got your Bibles, we've got it up here. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. 
This feels epically hard to open up our hands and to sell our the possessions that are valuable to us to give to those in need. But this was the ethos of the earliest church. This was the first century church. We see in Acts chapter 2 that they took this so seriously that it permeated every part of the early church when they gathered. And I want you to think about, like, in our world today, we have these modern inventions. They're called banks, okay? We, had, we have tons of security around our wealth, right? We pay lots and lots of tax money so that we have police officers who will make sure to protect our security and our safety and our money. We spend lots of money on insurance so that if something's stolen from us, we will be made whole. In the ancient world, security was much more difficult. It was so hard to obtain and to keep their value safe. And so a lot of times that they would, they would do, and still, we still do this today, is we take our money and we invest it in stuff that long-term holds its value because it's easier to have stuff of value than to hold money that transfers value across time and space. Okay? So it's really easy to take somebody's debit or credit card and go on a spending spree for about five minutes until your app tells you that it's stolen. <laughs> it used to be a lot easier. But somebody takes your cash, what can they do with it? They can jet and go spend it how they want. But it's harder to do with objects. So in the ancient world, they had lots of objects that had wealth. So when they say sell your possessions, it's saying take the liquid assets that have been entrusted to you, the things that you have, and give to those in need. This is a direct command of Jesus. Don't waste the resources he's entrusted to you that were meant for other people on yourself. Say that again. Do not waste the things that God has entrusted to you on yourself when they're meant for other people. Because all of your stuff is disintegrating. None of it's going to last. Um, I, had, I had a hard drive failure this week a physical hard drive failure. And it was painful. <laughs> it has four terabytes of media that belong to many of my clients. And it's going to cost me somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 to retrieve the information on that hard drive. But here's the thing. It's, it probably doesn't work because it's a Seagate and it's a trash hard drive. But... Um, the real reason it stopped working is because it sat on my desk. Hard drives that get used a lot don't fail. Hard drives that don't get used fail because they don't spin, they don't do their purpose, okay? That's what happens with our stuff. Whether you use it or not, your stuff is going to disintegrate and go away. There's... Uh, I, I was at an estate sale last week for a friend who lives in our neighborhood. Do you guys go to estate sales? It's like every week in my neighborhood there's an estate sale. Um, just my neighborhood. Uh, but you walk through an estate sale, and what I'm struck by is there's lots and lots of things there that were never used that had some value and now have no value because they waited so long that they stopped being useful. That is everything that you own. Everything that you have is, is losing its value day by day. Wouldn't it be, like I always think about my knees. Wouldn't it be terrible to have great knees when you're 80? 
it would be terrible because it would mean that you didn't live a life that was worth living. Your knees should be used, this body should be just ready to go because here's what, here's what you don't want. You don't want your mind to go before your body. I'm not, I, like this is real. You do not want your mind to go for, before your body. Use it up. Use up that cartilage. Use up those bones. Use up those muscles. Use up your stuff because it's going away. Everything that we have is going away. That's what Jesus was trying to tell us is don't let it be wasted to entropy as everything moves towards chaos in our world. Mark 4, verse 19. Jesus is giving a warning to his disciples. But all too quickly, the message of the gospel is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for things, so no fruit is produced. Material wealth and our worry for provision is going to choke out the teachings of Jesus. Wealth is so deeply tied to our relationship with God because it fundamentally is about our belief that God himself will provide for us that we live in a world that has what it needs and that God himself is giving us what we need day by day. And so your relationship to money is a perfect analog to your relationship with God. Your relationship to money is a perfect analog to your relationship with God. It expresses how much you trust God, how much you're connected to God and one another, and who's Lord or King of your life. We must adopt a mentality of abundance, that God is going to provide for what we need and that tomorrow may never come. Because otherwise, we live a life of, of wasted opportunity by taking what we have and using it on ourselves. Let's go to Matthew chapter 619, David. I'm skipping ahead because it says one minute. I'm, I'm hurrying. Matthew 6, 19, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. This is so straightforward, but we forget over and over again. Uh, right now, there's this, there's this sense, people, people are talking about generational wealth as if it were a social good. People are talking about, I want to I create wealth for myself so that I can be a generational blessing to my kids and my grandkids. That, so that sounds real noble. That sounds like such a, such a great idea to be a blessing to our kids and our generations. But as Ms. Simplot knows, um, there, is, there is generational destruction that happens from wealth because fruit spoils. It's not meant to be passed from generation to generation. Wealth destroys families and people. This morning, as I was preparing, I was scrolling through social media, because that's what you do when you prepare for sermons. <laughs> and uh, there, there's been this story that keeps popping up in my feed of Michael Jordan's house from the north side of Chicago. He's been trying to sell it for 15 years. He started out by listing it at $28 million, and now it's down to $14 million. It's a seven-acre estate. It has a pool that has a putting green on the middle, and it has the number 23 on this gilded gate that swings open, and every room in that house is built for Michael Jordan to be a player on the Bulls. None of those things are true anymore. <laughs> Michael Jordan does not play for the Bulls. But there's this estate that's crumbling 
He spent $4 million in taxes for this place that you can't use because it's not built for anybody else but for him. It's such a waste. But that's what God's going to do when your estate sale comes. All of you are going to have an estate sale one day. And all the stuff that you've acquired is going to be rotting. And people are going to go, gosh, wouldn't it be, have been better if all this stuff had been worn out with use? Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. This is the center of Jesus' teachings on wealth, but I think that people misunderstand it. It's been taught over and over again that the two masters are God and wealth. That's what's been taught over and over again. There's God, and there's this, even some charismatic circles, they say the, the spirit of mammon or, or, or the, the, God, the God demon that oversees all wealth on earth. But the second master is not some demon. The second master is you. The second master is your flesh, your appetites, your need for ambition, your need for approval. Money is a proxy for all of your temptation in life. And so when it comes to the kingdom of God, you've got to choose between the two kings. Is it you or is it the king of all creation? Matthew 6, 26 gives us this. Look at the birds. They do not harvest or plant or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you so much more valuable than they are? We must remember that all things, everything in the universe, it's moving towards chaos and destruction, but God is making anew what we need each day, month, and year. And when we come to Paul, and when we see what he, how he talks about it in the early church, I think it's, it really settles it for us. First Timothy chapter 6 says this, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. And read that again. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we bought nothing with us. We brought nothing with us when we came into this world. We can't take anything with us when we leave. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Contentment is wealth. Because if you have enough, no one can take from you the joy of being in the world. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation. And they are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that will plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the truth faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Contentment is reasonable, and it brings us joy. It's reasonable in that greed and the desire to gather wealth is not going to bring you what you're looking for. In fact, discontentment with what you have is the thing that will keep you from having joy. The very pursuit of wealth is itself anathema to the pursuit of happiness. Happiness comes from contentment with what we have. The pursuit of wealth brings about a deep, deep sadness. We're going to start with nothing. We're going to end with nothing. 
And so if we look at this world and we have enough food and we have enough clothing and if we have a place to lay our head, we can live in contentment. Contentment is not just about money. Remember, money is a proxy for all of the temptations that you have. And so are you unhappy with your job? Don't raise your hand. It's fine. I know it. Are you unhappy with your, your job? It's because you have this, this, over, this, this overdeveloped need for significance in the world. It's the same temptation that Satan brought to Jesus in the desert when he said, throw yourself down from here. Throw yourself down from the temple and all these people will worship you. They'll gather around you. All of us have this over, overdeveloped sense of a need for significance in the world. But if your job is just meant to care for your family and to care for your needs, to bring you the food and the clothing and the shelter that you need, all of a sudden contentment can bring joy right now. Are you unhappy with your home? It's because you have this deep desire for your flesh to be comfortable. Now, there is some need for comfort. There's some need for our bodies to have rest and to feel safe. But our body is going to desire true leisure. Our, have you followed the, the FIRE movement, the financial independence retire early movement? It's this group of 30-year-olds who all write articles on Forbes about how they made a million dollars and have $80,000 a year in, in income so they can do whatever they want. This is like, there's a huge movement of these people who are just dying to get financial independence and retire early. But what all of them find is that their lives are meaningless without the important work of caring for themselves and their family and the world around them. Are you unhappy with your home? It's because you have this overdeveloped desire for comfort. Comfort will not give you what you're looking for. Safety won't give you what you're looking for. Are you unhappy with your place in the world? You want a more important job? You want to have more wealth? You want to have more significance in the world? Money is primarily about my coercive power to compel you to do what I want. Have you ever thought about it? When you have money, it's me saying, I have this, you want it. If you want this, do what I ask. It's every financial interaction in the world is me saying, I have something that you want, now dance for me. I have something that you want, serve me. I have something that you want, build something for me. That is every single financial transaction in the world. And the more money that I have and the more power that I have to compel people to serve my appetites, my approval, and my need for ambition, that's going to make me happy, right? That's what we believe, is that money's going to give me what I truly want. I, we, we have to repent. It requires a deep repentance because we have turned money into an absolute good, when in reality, the love of money is destroying the very gift God gave us in this world of care and contentment that comes from living in alignment with what he's provided for us. Ecclesiastes 5, I'll, I'll end here, says this, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Those who love money will never have enough. Amen. 
how meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. As a, as a community, we are pursuing simplicity. That's why we have these radical minimums of church of up, in, and out. It's why we are in a gym. And as much as I try to get rid of stuff, we keep adding stuff for setup and tear down. We got we to simpl- keep simplifying. It's because we want to live simply so that we have more money and time for mission. So that we have more money and time to pursue justice. So that we have more money and time for connection and joy together. This should guide our future and our choices of where we meet and how we form up and who we are going forward. Let's choose simplicity because this is the way of the kingdom of God. So how do we live with this kind of contentment and simplicity in our lives? Well, just like in everything, we start with repentance because our love of comfort and our love of power and our love of significance that is all expressed in our love of money It starts with some lies that we're believing. We believe that we should be gods who have more power and wealth than anybody. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble, but you live a more comfortable life than every king on earth 100 years ago. You you probably do less manual labor than almost everyone on earth did 100 years ago. We live like kings And we believe that we should still have more power and wealth so that we have to do less and less work and less and less toil. That's a lie. God set us here to do good work and to be content with what he's provided for us. So we must repent of our desire for power. We have to repent because so many of us want to be free from work. So many of us are just thinking about winning the lottery or having that deal go through or retirement someday because we imagine that not having work will give us the joy that we're looking for, the contentment that we're looking for. But God gave us work. He gave us work at the beginning. There's work now. There'll be work in your retirement and there'll be work in the kingdom of God. And so until we embrace work as our fundamental part of who we are, as his created order, We will never find contentment and joy. We need to stop believing the lie that we're meant to be free from work. Work is a part of how God built us. It's a part of how we find contentment and joy. We believe that God won't provide, so I have to. We believe that it's up to me to make things happen. With this building situation, it's real easy for me to believe that I've got to find a place. I have ways of making things happen. I have connections. I have, you know, I have real estate tools at my disposal to find a place for us. But I fundamentally believe that God is going to provide. So we're going to wait on him. Can you believe that God will provide for you and your family rather than toiling and and trouble and feeling like you've got to make something happen? So which of those lies is fundamental to you? Do you believe that you should have power and wealth? Do you believe that you should be free of work? Or do you believe that you have to provide? I want you to think about that. Which of those three lies is the one that drives you to love wealth and to love security? We're going to take a moment. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to pray. 
And I want you to take a moment and repent of the thing God brings to your heart. Lord God, we repent as a community of our desire for wealth, our desire for the need to control the world around us, our desire to hoard material things so that we feel safe and secure. Lord God, we repent that we think that we need more power and more authority than you've given us. Lord God, we repent that we've been trying to get out of the work that you've set aside for us as a gift. Lord God, we repent that we believe that it's on us, not on you, to provide for us. And Lord God, we take up the truth that you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And like you provide for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, you will so much more provide for your children. Lord God, we take up the belief that you have given us good work that's set before us to do, to be a blessing and create flourishing in this world. Help us to embrace it as a gift. Lord God, we take up the truth that you have given us enough for what you've called us to. Lord God, give us open hands to receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How should simplicity become a part of our everyday choices? This came up on my feed today, a news article. So hopefully you can see it. It says, Marie Kondo admits that the KonMari method doesn't work when you have kids. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Some vindication. I shouldn't feel so much schadenfreude about it, but here we are. Um, but I, I, love, I love how Marie Kondo thinks about things because she makes you think about what you bring into your house and what you take out of your house. And so how do we live simplicity in our everyday lives? It starts by asking, what am I bringing into my house? What am I spending my money on? And will I use it or will I not use it? And if you're not going to use it till it's used up, it may not belong to you. It may not be for you. And the next question you should be having is, what's up, Audrey? <laughs> slap, slap, slap. I love it. Second is, what's going to become of this thing after I stop using it? How will it be disposed of? How many microplastics will my grandkids have to drink because of this choice I'm making to consume something now? How long will I have to store or manage this object before it's useful? I don't know if you realize this, but self-storage units are the most valuable real estate in the world right now on a per square foot per cost basis because we love to buy crap and throw it away in a place that we have no access to. That's absurd. There's something wrong with us. Don't buy things we don't need. Get rid of stuff you're not using. Stop storing it when you don't need it. Sorry, Ernie. <clears throat> How long is that stuff going to be useful to you? You got to find places to use it. How much are you going to spend to keep that thing? How many times are you going to have to touch it in your life? Every time I walk out in my garage, I'm like, I hate all of this stuff. I've got to get rid of it. I, I'm so sick of spending my time thinking about where I'm going to store junk. That has to be a part of how we live simply. Here's the last two questions. Will it connect me with others 
or isolate me from them. I'm talking about tools. I'm talking about stuff. I buy tools so I don't have to call Ernie and borrow his. Okay? I buy party supplies because I don't want to have to borrow it from a friend. I do reuse the gift bags you give my kids, to be clear. Let's be clear. But is the thing I'm buying so that it isolates me from needing somebody else? And then lastly, will it connect me with God or isolate me from him? Am I hoarding something so that I don't have to trust God? A couple of things. And then I promise we're going to go. <laughs> How long have they been standing up there? Uh, <laughs> two things. We, we, are, we are learning this together. This is not an all or nothing thing. We are having our appetite shaped by the kingdom, okay? So we, are, we have a buy nothing group on Facebook that Laura has started. And what it is is we put our stuff on there and we give it away and we use it and we find ways to use our stuff, okay? So that's one thing. We are reactivating our borrowing library, which is going to have assets and tools that are, that are available to our community. And this is what it looks like to live simply, is to say that God has entrusted to us and to our neighbors enough. And I don't, we don't have to have 60 lawnmowers in my neighborhood. We probably only need two or three, actually. You know, like, let's find ways to leverage what we have and use it well. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.